Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel, Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. So Whit, you've referred to this as the most Sri Lanka-facing literary podcast, and I can't imagine why you would say such a thing. (laughs) You know what? There's surely I'm going to say that, and then someone's going to DM us that no, no, we're the we're the better one. But I'm going to I'm going to stand up for our participation and awareness of Sri Lanka, <laughs> thanks to you. But we've done but we've done episodes on politics in in other South Asian countries too. You know, we've spoken about authoritarianism in India, um, and we've talked about people writing from expatriate points of view. We've uh, I remember we had Tamima Nam on to to talk about Bangladesh and climate change there. Yeah, but we've never talked about uh, Pakistan. Uh, we haven't done an episode focused on that country. And I think that we're probably pretty overdue. And I wish that we had a happier occasion for this. Um, but the thing that has been sort of um, very much on my mind lately has been the recent news there, which is the story of a months-long flood, um, the result of monsoon rains that have displaced millions of people, um, to be specific, about 35 million people. Um, the death toll from the initial flooding was 17, about 1700 people. But now people are waiting for those floodwaters to recede and they're just dealing with a ton of other problems. The spread of flood related diseases like dengue, malaria, food insecurity, um, you know, crops have been just swept away. Housing insecurity, of course, uh, medical care and just a ton of other issues. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a problem of massive scale. Um, Pakistan's not responsible for, uh, you know, any significant portion of the world's carbon emissions, as we'll be discussing. But it's one of the countries that's most vulnerable to climate disaster. Last month, multiple outlets are reporting that fully one third of the country was underwater. And this is all on the heels of considerable political upheaval there that precedes the floods. Like, in April, Imran Khan, a former cricket star who served as prime minister since 2018, who was ousted by a no-confidence vote, subsequently charged under anti-terrorism law, accused of making threats against state officials. And lately, he's been giving speeches alleging that his ouster is the result of U.S. interest in regime change. And like Sri Lanka, Pakistan was facing a socioeconomic crisis before this, with lots of inflation, skyrocketing prices. And so the floods are affecting people at a time when they're already struggling, basically. Today, we're going to talk about all this with a novelist whose debut novel takes on some of Pakistan's complex history, Amina Ahmed. Amina is the author of The Return of Faraz Ali, 
Amina, a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, has received a Stegner Fellowship from Stanford University, a Pushcart Prize, and a Rona Jaffe Writers' Award. Her short fiction has appeared in One Story, The Southern Review, Echotone, and elsewhere. She is also the author of a play, The Dishonored. She teaches in the MFA program at the University of Minnesota, where she is Sugi's new colleague. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Amina, thank you so much for joining us. Um, You and I have had the opportunity to chat a little bit, and so I know that you grew up in Britain, but traveled to Pakistan frequently as a child. And of course, uh, it's the setting for your fantastic novel, The Return of Faraz Ali. I wonder if you can tell our listeners a little bit about your connection to the country. Yeah, I mean, as you said, I grew up in London, but we went pretty much every year to Pakistan. So it was a kind of annual kind of reconnection that kind of happened every time. Um, we spent summers there. Um, we were there for family occasions. And it, it was, I think Pakistan kind of became a little bit of a refuge for me. Um, growing up in, in London in the 1980s was perhaps not the easiest place to be a brown kid. And um, yeah, Pakistan felt like a little bit of a sanctuary from all that. I became aware of other obstacles whenever I was in Pakistan and certainly kind of gender became much more of an issue when I was there. Um, But I enjoyed uh, a kind of a degree of invisibility um, being there um, and also like elevated kind of status as well because I was also from outside. So I had a really close relationship with Pakistan, but I was then, and even now I remain kind of an outsider really. I'm very much a diaspora Pakistani, but I think that's also why I continue to write about Pakistan so much. Who did you go visit just out of curiosity? Like what parts of your family or friends or who were the people that you hung out with when you go back there? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So my grandmother was in Karachi, so we went there. And then my father's family home was in Lahore. And I had um, other relatives in other places who were, they were military families, so they were often posted to different places. So I would go to Islamabad and Bindi as well. But primarily Lahore was the place that I saw as kind of my family home. Um, My grandmother's house as well. Um, But she also actually, until pretty late in life, she kept visiting us as well. So that was kind of the bonus um, until she got, you know, too too elderly and infirm to kind of do that. And you speak Urdu. I do. I do speak Urdu. My Punjabi isn't great. And uh, even my Urdu, I mean, even with Urdu, like just the day before yesterday, I called my mom because I'd come across a word that I hadn't heard before. And I had to ask her to translate it for me. And so I feel like I'm, I'm fluent enough to get by when I'm there. But, you know, there's language gives you access. And what you, every time I come up against those moments of like, I can't access this, I feel again, my otherness and my difference um, and the outsiderness that I often feel. I was very sorry to hear about the floods, which is the reason we're having you on um, along with your work. Uh, the scope of what's happened is is pretty staggering. I want to say that the numbers are sort of incomprehensible, but of course, it's our job to try to to comprehend it and put it into context for the for this podcast and for our listeners. A third of the country 
is underwater, 35 million displaced, $30 billion in damage. Uh, I remember when the when the Missouri River flooded, which is where I live in Kansas City on the Missouri River in the 90s. It was nothing. It was very bad, but nothing like that. Um, how has your community there experienced the flooding and what's the situation on the ground now? Well, I mean, just to say that my community or my network are very much an urban network. And, you know, my family, as I said, are kind of in Lahore and Karachi. And, you know, we belong to a very privileged section of Pakistani society. So actually, they have not been impacted. We are very much like the rest of the world, bystanders watching what's happened really in rural Pakistan. So most of it has happened, most of the flooding, although Karachi annually usually gets some flooding, most of this has happened in southern Pakistan, in Sindh and Balochistan, um, and in really, really poor and deprived areas. Um, Pakistan has this year also been in a state of economic crisis with very you know, intense kind of inflation. So these were communities that were already dealing with that. And now sort of a kind of a crisis situation has kind of turned very nightmarish for them with the with the floods. Um, and it continues like, I mean, the flooding happened, but obviously the repercussions are still kind of in full force right now. And so much of what's happening is to do with illnesses, waterborne illnesses, cholera, Huge. I mean, what I've heard described anecdotally are like kind of huge banks, like what look like tidal waves of mosquitoes carrying dengue and malaria. So it, it it's it's been really catastrophic. So I feel like um, one of the things that first caught my attention about this was um, a Facebook post posted by like a friend of a friend that noted that more people had been displaced by these floods than by partition which immediately kind of like, I was like, oh my God, I, had, I don't think I am actually comprehending these numbers. Um, and like what you're describing also, like, so the floods actually took, a f the floods occurred over a few months, right? As a result of monsoon rains. And then my understanding is also that like the flood waters are expected to take three to six months to recede. And in this time, like the displaced population includes, um, you know, people like, for example, like a lot of pregnant girls and women, and now where are they to give birth, um, etc. Or, um, yeah, like these waterborne illnesses. So there's been a lot of media coverage of the floods. And Whitney and I are both former and sometime journalists, and we're always interested in our guest take on how mainstream media is doing covering the subjects in which, you know, you take an interest or in which you have a history. And I know that I am um, horribly picky about coverage of Sri Lanka and I've been reading the news coverage you post about Pakistan. You're one of the people I turned to sort of be like, what did I'm going to post? Uh, what did what did you link to? And that also made me curious about what you're not posting. Um, and I wonder if you have any kind of pet peeves about the way that this has been covered or any outlets that you would point us to that are the most reliable. What, what in your opinion, the media is getting right and wrong as it covers this large, what is really like this large scale climate disaster? Right, right. I mean, it's interesting to talk about coverage because you're right, it did have some coverage. And I think especially as soon as people understood the scale of it, because it was happening over months. Um, and initially, even in Pakistan, there wasn't as much coverage until the situation just became such a kind of a calamity. And yes, there has been some coverage. I mean, if you ask Pakistanis, they will say to you there's been not enough coverage, and which is the way. And the reason that Pakistanis feel that is because Pakistanis are still in the throes of trying to raise money. And I think from around mid-September, I started seeing on my kind of news, social media feeds that it's disappeared. We're having a lot of trouble raising money now. Um, and so... I, I think 
the thing about the news cycle is you, you tend to get like a snapshot at the most dramatic moment, the kind of apex of the story. But of course, the story is ongoing. Um, and it, right now, we're actually just in the middle, a kind of a very long kind of perpetual second act of that story. Um, my frustration often with mainstream news media is how fragmented the stories can feel when they're covered. So you get a moment, um, but one of the things you don't get as much context about, I think, has been how temperatures have been rising now for several years in Pakistan. They were hitting temperatures in certain places this, this spring in April, May, like I think that were like 120 degrees. Um, and this is, this is just a process that has been happening. And the conversation kind of gets divorced from the bigger story about climate crisis and that this flood is not like a freak occurrence. It's happening because this is now a pattern and it's, a, you know, the changing weather patterns that have kind of evolved as a result of kind of increasing temperatures. So I think Pakistanis would want more coverage. They definitely want to see, you know, uh, I mean, we're also facing, as well as kind of all these immediate crises around waterborne illnesses, is actually hunger, which is going to become more and more striking in the coming days. There have been over a million animals lost. And while it takes that long for the water to go, it doesn't mean that those that, that land is ready for, for planting. So it's... it's yeah. I was just going to ask, just because I don't have a sense of this, and maybe you would have a better one. What the topography of the area that's flooded is like, if it is mostly like plains, if it is the flooding is coming from a single river or from multiple rivers or from rainfall happening in one place. Like, you know, the flooding that I, when I think about flooding in America, it's usually from a certain river did this had this big flood, you know, and, and went over its banks or the Mississippi floods and um, or there's a hurricane kind of flooding. I mean, there's all those different kinds of things can happen. So what is. What, what just a little bit more of like what it looks like on the ground there. Now I know you haven't been there, but but from your you know talking to people and from the news that you're covering. Well, I mean, I my like I, I have no expertise in the area of topography, but um, you know the monsoon rains have have been so torrential. So my understanding is that what has happened and why they're having such difficulty in draining the water is because areas have become inundated with water that do not usually get that water. So there is no way to pump. So they're having to pump. Um, they're having to cut through roads and infrastructure in order to get this water back towards rivers. Okay. And that's, that's probably as so much as I So it's coming I, from rain, it's getting stuck in a place and not being able to drain. Okay, that's Just that's not able to drain. That's very right? different than anything I've experienced. Right, right. And my impression um, is... But like I say... Oh, and I... I was going to say... Sorry, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> go on. Just just again, but I have no expertise in this, but that's my sense of what's happened. It seems like also one of the things I've seen repeatedly mentioned is that the floods affected roads and bridges in particular, therefore like cutting off pieces of land that were formerly connected to other pieces of land. People saying, I now live on an island and that sort of also making it hard to get resources or relief from one area to another that that, yeah, bridges and roads in particular um, have been sort of cut off. And you mentioned also, I mean, you of course mentioned, um, food insecurity and, um, you and I had been talking about militarization and socioeconomic hardship and debt. You're mentioning like the difficulty in raising money. So this is like a, right, this, um, what was it? 30 billion in damage. And then I was reading somewhere that there's been from governments around the 
world something like 100 to 110 million in aid, which is like a drop. It is a drop. And then um, we were talking about in the late summer about how the situations in Sri Lanka and Pakistan compare. And I, um, being like a self-absorbed person, had not really thought about this comparison. And you were like, actually, these these things are very comparable. Like there's militarization and and um, you know these governments that operate in a certain way, and then this this food insecurity and rising debt and inflation. And I think in Pakistan is it something like something like twenty seven percent inflation right now. Yeah, um, it's huge. And both of these places are also have been pursuing IMF bailouts, which are really controversial. Like oh, classic neoliberal policy, and both places are getting them. It looks like, and it's it seems like it's one point one seven billion for Pakistan. Again, sort of still a drop in the bucket of that damage and 2.9 billion for Sri Lanka. And these things come with string atta- strings attached, like stringency measures. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit um, about the relationship between militarization and socioeconomic hardship in Pakistan and what sort of position the country was in before the flooding. Right. I mean, I will say, um, like, in terms of Pakistan's military, Pakistan's military has occupied a really powerful position for a really long time and kind of continues to do so. Um, I think they are account for about 15 to 16% of, of government expenditure, which is like very substantial for a country of that size. Uh, they they remain in charge of things like foreign policy and security, but they have such long tentacles that their influence can be seen in the media, in you know management of elections, education, all over the place, and they leave very little space for kind of civilians. And not to say that our civilian governments have been great, you know, far from it. Um, but with that constant interference, there's very little space for, for civilian control. And, and the fact is that military, re, you know, military industries have a whole different set of concerns and interests and obsessions that don't necessarily kind of align with the needs of people. And so funding that should be going to some places is, is just not going. In fact, right in the middle of the floods, my understanding is that another arms deal around F-16s was finalized, actually. So literally at the same time as all this was happening. Um, And as you say, Pakistan had been, you know, on the verge of uh, kind of really kind of in in an economic freefall, actually. Um, And we've had all the destabilization that comes with the ousting of a prime minister and a takeover, you know, that's happened. So... I mean, things have been really dire for a really, really long time. And this, like you say, what's coming in now is a drop in terms of what people's needs are. And, and you know, and I suppose in addition to that, you know, the, the other question is about the power of the military and the difficulty of mitigating that power. Um, they, they became so powerful partly during kind of the Cold War in the 70s and then post 9/11 again in the war on during the war on terror where they have just grown and grown and become this very huge institution it's really difficult to reverse that power once it's there and once it's established so i think that i feel like that continues to be a constant tension in pakistan okay we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back So in terms of political destabilization that you're talking about, we mentioned at the top of the show that 
Imran Khan was recently ousted by a no-confidence vote uh, as prime minister. And when we have disasters here in the United States, it's a very, you know, it's a way of judging, in a sense, the political leaders and what they, how they are reacting to the crisis. And it often affects the way that people think about the government. So I wondered if you could talk about who's in charge now in Pakistan and who's viewed as being responsible for dealing with this disaster and how they're doing. I mean, right now, uh, the new prime minister is Shabazz Sharif, um, who has taken over, and they're kind of effectively a caretaker, care, caretaking government. Um, I, it's hard to say because factions are so sharply kind of uh, riven in Pakistan that to, to assign blame, I think everybody right now is blaming each other. Um, and that kind of very factional political infighting is kind of really characteristic of how government works in Pakistan. <laughs> actually, that happens you know? here too. What are the factions right. that are blaming each other? I'm just out of curiosity. Uh, well, I mean, the PTI are furious about Imran Khan going. They have a lot of popular support. There are tensions between them and the army. There are tensions between the PPP and Nawaz Sharif's party. I mean, it's a very complicated kind of political sort of landscape there. Um, and often there are ethnic kind of divisions as well that that kind of are marked by those political factions as well that play a part. So I guess so that it's would messy. make it hard to organize a response, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think, you know, even even if everything, all being well, it would still be hard to organize a response, actually. Um, you know, you're talking about a country that's really poorly resourced. Even if its politicians aren't great, even if it's, uh, you know, kind of must kind of manage the pressures of the army too, it's still a very poorly resourced place. Um, you know, there were floods in 2010, and I think there's been a lot of you should have done more since then, which I completely understand. You know, there is that sense of like that there, there should have been more management and disaster preparation. And at, at the same time, you know, it's like any time there is poverty, you know, whether it's a person or whether it's a country, you're lurching from one crisis to the next. There isn't almost often there aren't often the resources or the kind of the ability to kind of plan in the way that, you know, needs to be done. It seems to me like um, one of the things that your book does so masterfully is to, I mean, I was thinking about the way that your book flits through time as I kept reading these news stories where they would keep flitting back in time to these 2010 floods or to other instances of natural disaster and seeing how things had changed, but also not changed across time periods. Um, and, and your book also portrays how corruption in state institutions affect individual lives and um, how people butt against those things and or fail to resist them. Um, and that starts with your protagonist, uh, Faraz Ali, who as a boy is taken um, from his mother uh, who works in a red light district. And, and that happens kind of at the behest of his father who um, rises to become a powerful bureaucrat. And I wonder if um, you would read a little bit to us from the book. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I'll read you a little bit from uh, chapter two. And this is kind of the, the moment at which this story kind of gets going, really. Faraz is a police officer. His father is a very powerful bureaucrat, and he calls him to ask a favor of him. And this kind of follows on from the opening of the book, which opens 
on the nights of protests, street protests, um, which are protests against the military government of that time and the dictator, military dictator at that time, who was Ayub Khan. So this is Wajid calling Faraz Ali. Thing is, Wajid said, I'm actually calling because I need your help with something. I hate to ask when I know Bhutto Saab is intent on dragging you all into his circus act. That's fine, Faraz said. He wanted to sound poised because his father had never asked him for anything before. The superintendent from City Division is going to call you shortly. He'll tell you you've been posted to Tibby Station in the Walled City. The Walled City? The old man was silent again. Yes, I'm afraid so. Shahi Mola. A pause. I don't understand, Faraz said. Something's happened and I need some help. I need someone I can trust. Faraz leaned back. Wajid was trusting him with something. You're the last person I would send there, but I think you're the only person I can rely on in this situation. Faraz could hardly imagine the kind of crisis in which Wajid would trust him above any of his many other lackeys and connections. I know you're smart enough not to go wandering into matters from the past. I mean, your people are all gone from there, I think. But we don't want your connection to the Mohalla announced. It'll be all over town if anyone gets hold of it. He waited. That wouldn't be good for anyone, would it? A breeze and the stack of papers on Faraz's desk fluttered, awakened. What is it you need? Wajid sighed as if exasperated by all he had to do. There was an accident in the Mohalla tonight, all a bit of a mess, and there were some people present, witnesses, who really can't get embroiled in something like this. You understand what I mean? What happened? What kind of accident? I don't know, some kind of drunken brawl, that's all I know. Wajid sounded irritated. Who are these people, these friends of yours? That's irrelevant, Wajid said. Irrelevant meant they were important and not only to Wajid. They have nothing to do with this. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, terribly unlucky. When you get there, you should find the officers at Tibi amenable to your instructions. But I need to be sure that they'll clean this up properly. No records, no papers. Official channels are not open on this. So the local officers know, but no one upstairs? I believe not. And I'd like to make sure it's kept under wraps, so I need someone in charge whom I trust. Trust. There it was again. You've seen the mess on the streets. We don't want to add to the drama by giving the newspapers a story that might inflame people. Thank you very much. Thank um, you. It's funny the way... <laughs> Well, it's like when Trump says he, he needs someone he can trust. It means he needs somebody who can lie for him. <laughs> Somebody's, it's the opposite of the word. Um, the, the passage is early in the book, um, but it sets the scene for this sort of tone that persists throughout the book. And you're, the line that you use is um, official channels are not open on this, you know, having to do things in the back rooms. Um, and of course, it's, it's this corrupt ask that sets the main events of the book into motion. Um, how did you think about depicting corruption and impunity in the novel? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I, um, you know, Pakistan is a very hierarchical society. It's very rigid as well. Those hierarchies are really kind of um, driven by gender and caste and class. And there's very little kind of social mobility. And I was just really interested in the way those who 
are in power and those who are privileged are able to use the state and the tools of the state in order to kind of maintain that position for themselves. And I was particularly interested in this community. So Faraz is being asked to go and cover up a murder that takes place in the red light district and the murder of a young girl. And this community strikes me as one of the most vulnerable communities in Pakistan, partly but the nature of their work as sex workers means they are incredibly reviled and there's very little kind of connection um, and concern for their, for their vulnerability and for the lack of protection they have as workers. And so I was kind of just interested in looking at how normalized violence has become for those communities really at you know the lack of protection for them but also how the you know ignoring that violence the kind of injustice the lack of consequences around acts of violence against them have you know is also a violence it's also a violation against that community and so those were just kind of some of the things that I was sort of interested in looking at um when thinking about how the hierarchy of Pakistani society kind of works. So as I was reading your book and thinking about corruption in official institutions, and as I was thinking about the floods, I couldn't help but remember uh, the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami in which 230,000 people died in um, the country with the second highest number of casualties was Sri Lanka. And I had paid a lot of attention to that event from the vantage point of being like you, diaspora, um, and I heard so much about corruption and misuse of tsunami and also just so much anxiety among the people I knew who wanted to give and who were unsure about sometimes where their money was going, money just going missing. And there was a lot of news coverage eventually also about that. Um, and of course, in Pakistan, accusations, as you mentioned earlier, are flying fast and furious between the current and former prime ministers. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about how corruption might be affecting flood relief efforts. Right. I mean, I can't speak to very many specifics, but I did see a news item which um, Myra Hayat, who is a uh, researcher, an assistant professor who researches water, um, had posted. And it was a news clip from ARY, which is a Pakistani news channel. And in it, they were talking about the purchase of these prefabricated homes for flood victims. And I thought this was really, really interesting. I mean, they had a whole bunch of kind of Pakistani architects talking about how problematic this was. The homes cost about five lakhs. Um, they are, you know, industrial products. So that's problematic in itself in terms of emissions and whatever else. Um, but obviously that money is going out. It's not staying within Pakistan's economy. So that aid money is going out. And those homes, which are kind of like these Western containers, are not necessarily kind of relevant or you know easily integrated into the needs and the kind of functionality that people who live in rural communities need so this seems to me like one example of like i mean i i don't know what else is happening i i I don't have any idea actually about what's happening on the ground but these are the stories that i'm hearing and i know the anxiety that what you speak of of you know where to give there's been a lot of anxiety about who to give and like we we have gone and, you know, when we've wanted to give, often I've seen people choosing individuals who they know and who they feel because there is a wariness around organizations and, uh, you know, concern around where the money is going all the time. You know, you, you want to feel like it's making a difference and it's getting to the right place. That uh, comment about the industrial homes sounds very familiar to me. Um, 
And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I just remember people sort of wondering, you know, which parts of the country will aid go to? Will this ethnicity, this ethnic group get the the aid that it needs? Um, who is actually in charge of routing things um, in different ways? And also, like, even just the permanence of structures like that, like how permanent should a replacement home be? Because if it is beyond a certain level, then sort of the suggestion is you might live in it for a long time. And many people may not actually want to return to that kind of they may they may want to return to like a a structure, like you say, one that is more um, a part of like the home that they previously had or that is actually part of their environment and not one that's like manufactured by um, some overseas conglomerate that has, um, you know, corporatized and mass produced the relief. Um, Yeah, it sounds like the same old story. Of course, though, you know, this is also, as we've mentioned earlier, uh, this is a climate disaster. And when you're talking, as you did at the very beginning about like, how did you put it? Like, was it, did you used to call them waves of mosquitoes? Or I can't remember what you're, you used to particular. Tidal wave of mosquitoes. Compare, maybe. A tidal wave. Tidal wave yeah. of mosquitoes. Okay. So, I mean, that's, you know, those are the kinds of weird, not normal ecological things that happen when you're experiencing climate change. Um, and you know, Pakistan is a country that doesn't hasn't had the hasn't played a, a large role in climate change compared to the United States, for instance. I mean, we're the people who've emitted most of this gas, um, and so it, it raises this interesting question about countries that are having to accept the consequences of our emissions uh, in the West. Uh, Mohammed Hanif recently wrote a piece arguing not for aid so much, but for climate reparations um, in the New Yorker. I was wondering if you could talk about your opinion on that and where you think what you think the path going forward on this issue should be. Well, I really support that position, and I think a lot of Pakistanis do. Um, Pakistan is responsible for less than one percent of global emissions, and are very much within its kind of safe zone. Um, and there were last month a number of climate justice marches for reparations in Lahore. There was a march. There was kind of a gathering in London too. So I think that that noise is getting louder. Um, recently, again, Myra Hayat had published an op-ed in the Washington Post, which is about the colonial legacy and how that has set Pakistan up for, for, for the floods too. So in multiple ways, the West has had a hand in what is happening right now. And so I think what Pakistanis would like to see, and this is me speaking anecdotally, but just in, from the conversations I'm having, is they really don't want charity. They really want justice. That seems like a really important distinction. I'm going to thank so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And listeners, don't miss the return of Faraz Ali out now from Riverhead Books. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel, 
and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!